You're listening to the Homelessness Services Association podcast. This is an audio-only version of one of our webinars addressing the challenges of frontline and shelter work during the coronavirus crisis. If you'd like to view the video or look at the slides, please go to hsa-bc.ca. Well, good morning and welcome to HSABC's webinar, Dispute Resolution. I'm your host, Sarah Kift. And so when you're chatting to me in the question section, that's me who you'll be talking to. Um, I've worked in the frontline nonprofit sector for over 15 years, including in Vancouver's downtown east side at Carnegie Community Centre. And I develop and host webinars for HSABC, as well as instruct mental health first aid and produce podcasts for mental health organizations here in Vancouver. All right, so I get to introduce Susanna to you today. If you saw the screen at the very beginning, it said that it had a double Sarah Kift there. Um, but actually, Zuzana is your instructor today. She's a really amazing lawyer, and she's been working with Pivot for a long time. Um, she started as a legal advocate with TRAC, and she's been there since 2016. And Zuzana is a practicing lawyer, and she graduated from the University of Victoria with a Bachelor of Law in 2012, and she arg- articled with CLAS, the Community Legal Assistance Society. Before track, she did similar work advocating and representing tenants for the Kamloops and District Elizabeth Fry Society. And Zuzana has a new role uh, in concert with um, a new program at track. So I'm going to let her just talk a little bit about that and then we'll get going. Welcome, Zuzana. It's great to have you here today. Oh, thank you very much. Um, yeah. So track has a new program and I'm running that new program. It's called the housing law clinic. And what that clinic focuses on is mostly judicial reviews of dispute resolution decisions. So if the residential tenancy branch makes a terrible decision, uh, it's patently unreasonable, uh, then we can assist tenants try to overturn that decision in Supreme Court. Um, Right now, of course, Supreme Court is basically shut down, so that program is a little bit on hold, but we can still sort of draft documents and get things ready um, to go for when things reopen. Uh, My old program is now being run by uh, my colleague, Michelle, who is also a very good advocate and has been doing this for a long time. And that program assists assists tenants with dispute resolution proceedings at the residential tenancy branch. This workshop is called Dispute Resolution 101. It's essentially it's most it was written to be geared towards um, other advocates. So people who are helping other people with dispute resolution. But mostly it's pretty easily translatable to people who are representing themselves as well. So first off, what is dispute resolution? So it's a legal proceeding that's conducted by the residential tenancy branch, and it's intended to resolve landlord and tenant disputes. So it can only resolve disputes between a landlord and tenant. It cannot get involved to resolve disputes between two tenants, for example. Um, it's kind of like court, but it's a lot less formal. It's almost always conducted over the phone. Um, what happens is you you get a decision maker who is called an arbitrator and they make a legally binding decision after hearing the evidence from all the parties and witnesses. And principles of natural justice apply. So principles of natural justice are principles such as you each party has a right to adequate notice of the proceeding against them. Uh, each party has the right to the disclosure of evidence from the other party. So if a party want, if you, for example, want to include evidence in a dispute resolution, you have to provide that to the opposing party as well. 
Uh, each party has the right to have an opportunity to present their case and to respond to the case against them. They have the right to an unbiased decision maker and they have a right to adequate reasons. And that that one is a little bit misleading. Um, essentially, it's just you have the right right to be able to at least discern the basis of the decision from the decision that you get. Um, so that those are sort of the rights of natural justice. Uh, the re dispute resolution process is governed by the rules of procedure, um, which are found on the Residential Tenancy Branch website, along with the Residential Tenancy Act and the Residential Tenancy Regulation, which are the two pieces of legislation and regulation that govern most residential tenancies in British Columbia. And just a quick uh, note, um, dispute resolution is going ahead at this time, hey? Dispute resolution is going ahead at this time. So most of the hearings that are going on right now were scheduled before the emergency period started. Um, that said, anyone can still apply for dispute resolution and have a hearing scheduled now. The only real difference right now is that there aren't eviction notices being issued. So there aren't really people applying right now to cancel eviction notices, um, but everything else is still going ahead. So yeah, like I said, the decision maker is called an arbitrator and and the arbitrators are not bound by previous RTB decisions. So what that means is essentially you can have the same fact pattern as another tenant. Uh, you can have this, essentially the same case and an arbitrator can come up with a completely opposite decision. And as long as that decision isn't patently unreasonable, it can still stand. So an arbitrator does not necessarily have to follow prior decisions by the residential tenancy branch, but they are bound by relevant court decisions from Supreme Court and above. So if there are judicial review decisions specifically that relate to similar facts as the, the case that you have, then you can sort of submit those and an arbitrator is bound to follow that precedent to the extent that it's applicable. The standard of proof is balance of probabilities. So that's sort of as opposed to the standard of proof in a criminal proceeding, which is beyond a reasonable doubt. At dispute resolution and in most civil proceedings, the standard of proof is balance of probabilities, which essentially just means more likely than not. And the onus is usually on the applicant to prove their case. Uh, so that means that if you apply, let's say, for a monetary order against a landlord, um, and you get go to the hearing, it's up to you to prove your case. The landlord doesn't have to prove that they don't owe you money. You have to prove that they do. Um, and so all things being equal, if two parties show up to the hearing and neither party presents any evidence, that means the applicant ha generally has to lose um, because it's their burden of proof. So this is a little bit about um, the flow of how a case moves sort of through our office or another advocacy office. So the first thing we do when we see a case, and this can apply to a person who's considering whether they want to apply on their own, on own behalf for a dispute resolution. First, you, you have to decide whether it's the right thing to do in the first place. So we call this assessing the case. Uh, the first question we often ask is what what does the client or what do you actually want to achieve? And is that goal actually realistic? And is it likely to succeed at dispute resolution? And the second question is, even if it is realistic and might succeed at dispute resolution, are there 
better ways to get to achieve that goal. Um, for example, uh, have you attempted to resolve the problem with the opposing party just through negotiation? Uh, and then we also ask ourselves whether we understand all of the options and all of the possible outcomes and or consequences. Uh, one thing that people often don't think about, for example, when they're thinking about going to dispute resolution or another formal legal proceeding with somebody is how that might affect an ongoing relationship. So, for example, if you if you are still living in the unit with the landlord who you're thinking about suing, um, it's legitimate to think about how that action might affect the ongoing relationship. And if you're worried about that, um, it's completely reasonable to consider not going through with dispute resolution or leaving it for a later date. For example, monetary orders can be applied for at any point uh, up to two years after the end of the tenancy. So certain things you might decide to put off for some valid reasons. Um, so if you are helping somebody else, uh, one thing you have to think about is whether you actually have the capacity to do that. Um, and that's the next slide. So I think whether you are a professional advocate or not, if you agree to help somebody else with a dispute resolution, I think that you probably have an obligation to at least be capable of doing a reasonable job. Uh, so that's something you have to think about. Are you the right person to take the case forward? And if you don't think you have the skills, if you aren't familiar enough with the rules of procedure in the Residential Tenancy Act, and you don't think that you have the time to become familiar enough, then you have to think about whether to uh, ask that person to ask somebody else for help or refer them to an advocacy organization. Um, one thing to keep in mind is the residential tenancy branch has generally very strict deadlines, although there are some special rules in place right now during the COVID emergency. So you have to ask yourself whether you are capable of meeting those deadlines, because if you are not, that can destroy the entire case. And that leads us to knowing when to say no. If you aren't capable of helping somebody adequately, then it's probably better to not agree to help them at all. So once we've sort of assessed the case, uh, and I guess one thing I hadn't touched on is merit. Um, a merit assessment means how likely is this case to succeed? Um, here at TRAC, that is a very important question. We generally don't take cases that aren't likely to succeed unless there's a larger systemic reason to take them. Um, and that's a, that's the thing a person who's thinking of applying on their own behalf also has to ask themselves because it is a fair amount of work and it is quite a bit of stress. And if it isn't likely to result in the desired outcome, then maybe it isn't the right thing to do. But once we've decided that it is the right thing to do, we have to move on to applying for the hearing. Okay, so application deadlines. So there's a general Residential Tenancy Act limitation, which is two years from the end of the tenancy. And that applies to most kinds of dispute resolution proceedings. However, there are certain types of dispute resolutions that have their own um, deadlines. So disputing notice to end tenancy, uh, all the different kinds of notices have different application deadlines. So for example, the 10 day notice for non-payment of rent, the application deadline is only five days. Uh, one month notice 
for cause, the application deadline is 10 days and two month notice for landlord's use, it's 15 days. And actually the slide is missing uh, one that's the four month notice for um, renovations or conversions of property. And that's a four month notice and the application deadline is 30 days. Uh, during the emergency period, landlords can't legally issue notices to end tenancy. Uh, they can evict in exceptional circumstances, but for that, they have to make an application to the residential tenancy branch themselves. So they can't just give tenants notices to end tenancy during the emergency period. Uh, if they do, the ministerial order that's in place currently essentially just says that they're of no force or effect. So a tenant should not even have to try to dispute those. They should just not have any effect. And uh, can you just briefly talk about ex exceptional circumstances? Um, yeah, so there's a section of the Act, I think it's section 46 off the top of my head, but I'm not positive about that, that essentially uh, says that if a tenant sort of poses risk to the property, causes damage to the property, um, puts uh, the health and safety of the landlord or another individual in danger, and it's also unfair to, for the, to expect the landlord to wait the normal amount of time to evict, so just use a normal notice, then a landlord can make an application for early into a tenancy. Um, so during the emergency period, that section is still active, so landlords can apply under that section to evict tenants. And they also added a uh, provision for a landlord to do that if they are ordered to do it by a municipality or other le level of government. Um, yeah, so those are the exceptional circumstances. Thanks, Susanna. No problem. Uh, and there's a last bullet point that during the emergency period, arbitrators are directed to consider COVID-19 as an exceptional circumstance where they have the discretion to extend the time limit. So all of these time limits are discretionary except the two-year one. I don't think there's any discretion to extend the two-year uh, time limit. So for disputing a notice to end tenancy, if uh, tenants for whatever cannot meet the deadline for exceptional circumstances, an arbitrator may extend that deadline. They ab cannot, absolutely cannot extend it past the effective date of the notice, however. So they have discretion, but the discretion is limited. So for example, uh, 10 day notice to end tenancy, a tenant misses, if the tenant misses the five day deadline and applies on the seventh or eighth day or ninth day or even 10th day, um, an arbitrator has the discretion to extend the deadline to that date that the tenant applied. But if the tenant applies after the effective date, so 11th day, 12th day, et cetera, then the arbitrator does not have the discretion to extend that deadline and it just can't be done. So those are things that tenants have to be very careful of. So the thing about the emergency period also that is a little bit uncomfortable for a lot of people that I should mention is that they're only being extended two weeks at a time. Uh, and right now I think it's until the 12th. And we aren't really given a heads up ahead of time whether the government's going to extend it for another two weeks each time. Even though this last time sort of at, on April 28th, we pretty much knew that they would extend it for another two weeks. There's no announcement until it's already done. So every time it's sort of coming near to expiry, it's it's legitimate to start to worry that landlords will be able to start issuing eviction notices again, because um, in theory, if it, if the emergency period expires and isn't renewed, then landlords can immediately start to issue eviction notices. So people need to sort of be aware of that. Right on. And what's the so the latest deadline is 
what's the date that we should be aware of? What do you mean? Oh, um, like that it might expire? The emergency period right now is set to go to the 12th, I believe. Okay, good to know. May 12th, yeah. Um, I, I don't know. I expect it. They probably plan to extend it again, but given that there's an announcement coming today about possibly relaxing measures, I don't know for sure. All right. Well, that's something to put in our calendars to pay attention to. Yeah, for sure. And so far, they've only been announcing it on the day following, so it's a little bit nerve-wracking on the day that it expires. Oh, so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, so if a, if a tenant does miss a deadline because of COVID or COVID-related reasons, they should be prepared to explain why they missed it um, and the prejudice that they would suffer if the timeline is not extended and why the other side won't suffer any prejudice if it is extended and how the general principles of natural justice apply to whether or not the timeline gets extended. So this is that that point was more about things like evidence deadlines, because right now, again, the disputing a notice to end tenancy deadlines shouldn't be um, relevant because there shouldn't be any any eviction notices being issued. So there, there's a number of ways to apply for dispute resolution. Generally, even before the emergency period, the RTV was encouraging everybody to apply online. Um, there, the online application process can be found at the URL that you see on this slide. Um, it's the Residential Tenancy Branch website. Uh, it's a relatively straightforward online application. doesn't take very long. But you can also apply in person at the Residential Tenancy Branch or a Service BC Center. They're obviously discouraging people from doing that right now. But if you absolutely have to do it that way, then you should still be able to do it that way. Uh, there is a $100 filing fee. Low-income applicants can apply to waive the, the filing fee. So low-income, for the RTB, this is tied to the low-income cutoff, which um, is different depending on where you live in BC. So you'd have to, I think, look that up on StatsCan to figure out where the low-income cutoff is for your area. Um, okay, so if you do have to pay the $100 filing fee, you can recover it from the opposing party if you are successful at the hearing. So if the applicant has to pay the filing fee, respondent generally doesn't. If the applicant then succeeds at the hearing, they can recover the $100 filing fee from the respondent. And Susanna, just to, uh, people are asking about this, just to be totally clear, um, if a, a tenant receives an illegal notice of eviction, they shouldn't even bother applying for a dispute resolution right now, hey? I mean, in my view, it's always safer to do that, but the, according to the ministerial order, the, our reading of it is that you shouldn't have to. Okay. Um, and I think if you phone the RTB, they will probably tell you you don't have to. But I think if a tenant does receive a notice to end tenancy right now, it's completely legitimate to at least try to contact the RTB um, and see if they will forward it to the compliance and enforcement unit, because landlords really shouldn't be doing this. Like, they should know. It's been all over the news. There's no excuse that it's just not a reasonable excuse that they aren't aware they're not supposed to issue eviction notices right now. Right. So letting the RTB know uh, about it, even if you don't file for a dispute, is a good yeah. thing to do from an advocacy standpoint. Hey? I mean, it would be certainly something I would consider doing um, because it's really hard to imagine that it's not malicious on a landlord's part to issue an eviction notice right now. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, thank you. Yeah. Uh, it's important to list correct legal names and addresses of the respondents when you apply for dispute resolution. If you do not have that, uh, you may have to do a land title search to find out. So if you don't have the legal name of the landlord, or if you don't have their address for service, you should be able to at least get an address for service by doing a land title search. So that's done on the, that can be done at the land title office uh, or the MyLTSA website, which is the online version of the land title office. It usually costs, I think, 1050 or 1150, something like that. Uh, where a client wants to make more than one claim. Uh, so when you apply for dispute resolution, you essentially check off a bunch of boxes to indicate what kinds of claims you're trying to make, whether it be a repair order, a monetary order, or if you're trying to um, dispute and notice and tenancy. There's sort of check boxes for all of those. If you have multiple claims, you can make them at the same time. However, once you get to the hearing, if an arbitrator thinks that the claims are too unrelated to each other, they will often split them off and only hear one or two of the claims and the rest you would have to apply for later. Okay, notifying the other parties. Once you've applied for dispute resolution, the residential tenancy branch puts together a notice of hearing package. So it's essentially a summary of your application uh, it's got a file number on it, and it's got instructions. It's got a hearing date and time and instructions for how to phone into the hearing uh, included. You, as the applicant, are instructed to print that off along with some other documents, like I think fact sheets or hearing information sheets, and then serve those all on the respondent or respondents if there's more than one. So if you have three or four respondents, you're responsible for printing off that many copies and serving all of them individually. Um, service generally can be affected uh, in normal times. Service of these documents can only be affected in person or uh, via registered mail. But during the emergency period, email service is acceptable, but in-person service is not. Email service now is a little bit complicated. So essentially, the RTP has issued a interim order that talks about what, like how email service is supposed to work. So the first provision says that if you serve something by email and the person that you send it to acknowledges receipt of the document specifically, then it's served. It's served that day that they have acknowledged receipt. If you serve something by email and the person responds to the email and doesn't say that they have issues viewing the attachments or something like that, then it's considered served that day that you get that response. If you send something, if you serve something by email and you don't get a response, then an arbitrator has to, you'd essentially have to prove to an arbitrator that the email address is one at which you have communicated with that person successfully, sort of habitually in the past. And if the arbitrator is satisfied of that, then it will be considered served three days after it was emailed. Okay. Preparing for a hearing. So once you have applied for a hearing, you've got your notice of hearing documents and you've served them, you have to turn your mind to actually preparing for the actual hearing. 
and part of preparation for a hearing is usually putting together an evidence package. So most of the time you're going to want to support any testimony that you're going to give with some kind of documentary evidence. So pictures, letters, audio recordings, video recordings, that kind of thing can all be sort of submitted into evidence. But there are deadlines for that. So as the applicant, you have to have all of your evidence submitted and served at least 14 days before the hearing. So that means it must be received by both RTB and by the respondents at least 14 days before the hearing. Respondents, Susanna, sorry, yeah. how what in your experience is the time from like, do they give you enough time to pull everything together when you get that notice of hearing until the time that you have to be there? I mean, the timeline depends on the type of hearing. So it's hard to say what, and, and how much time an individual person needs is may differ. So I would suggest if you are applying for something like a monetary order or a repair order, something that doesn't have a deadline to apply, then it would be worthwhile to make sure you have your evidence together before you even apply. Mm -hmm. um, that way you're not sort of running up against that deadline. That said, um, generally speaking, most hearings don't go ahead faster than, uh, I don't know, six or eight weeks after you've applied. And sometimes, especially for monetary hearings, it's longer than that. Okay, great. So, yeah. Thank you. Yeah, no problem. Uh, yeah. So respondents want, will get the applicant's evidence at least 14 days before the hearing. Then they have up until seven days before the hearing to have their evidence served. So again, it has to be received by the RTB and the applicant at least seven days before the hearing. Um, if a respondent, so if an app, say you make an application for dispute resolution against your landlord, but your landlord thinks that they actually have a claim against you, uh, they have the right to cross apply. And they can do that at any point up until at least seven days before the hearing. But they'd have to sort of have that cross application served on you um, seven days before the hearing, which actually is quite tight. So it's not a lot of time to respond uh, to their cross application. When you are calculating the number of days, uh, you cannot include the day the evidence is received or the hearing date. And again, a note that during the emergency period, arbitrators are directed to consider COVID-19 as an exceptional circumstance uh, where they have the discretion to extend the deadline uh, time limit. So in the case of evidence deadlines, they, def they do have the discretion to extend them. If, uh, if evidence is served late, they have the option to simply accept the evidence and proceed with the hearing. Um, they have the ex the discretion to not accept the evidence as well, or they have the discretion to decide to adjourn the hearing and give the other side longer to be able to respond to the late evidence. A couple of other deadlines. So once you've made an application, you you have the opportunity to change it, and that's called an amendment. But any amendments have to be received by the residential tenancy branch and the respondent at least 14 days before the date of the hearing and request to adjourn the hearing. So if you can get the respondent to agree to an adjournment, then that written request has to be received by the RTB at least three days before the hearing. Um, and there has to be at least some evidence that both parties agree in order for you to get an adjournment sort of ahead of time in this way. 
but if the other party does not agree, you can still request an adjournment at the hearing. So you would have to show up to the hearing or have a representative show up at the hearing and make the adjournment request and sort of state the reasons for why the adjournment is needed. Again, um, arbitrators are now directed to consider COVID-19 as a potential reason to adjourn a hearing. So for example, if you know you couldn't get evidence together because you couldn't attend certain places to get evidence that you needed, um, and you can tell an arbitrator that, and then an arbitrator might consider adjourning for that reason. That said, if you haven't made an application yet and you think that you're going to have trouble getting evidence because of COVID-19, you might consider simply not applying until after if you have that option, if the deadline isn't sort of looming. Serving evidence. Um, so evidence can be served in sort of more ways than a notice of hearing. There's more acceptable methods. Um, once again, in in-person service is not an acceptable method during the emergency period, but email service is. So other ways that you can serve evidence is by leaving the evidence in a mailbox, sort of where you know that the person lives or works, or faxing it, or sending it regular or registered mail. And once you have served it, the, the Residential Tenancy Act provides for um, deemed receipt. So essentially, that means that depending on the method of service, an arbitrator will deem the evidence served regardless of whether or not the other side acknowledges receipt. And there's sort of certain timelines on that. So if you serve something in person, obviously it's received the same day. You don't really need a deemed receipt provision for that. If you leave something in a mailbox or post it on a door or fax it, it's deemed received three days later. If you mail it, regardless of whether it's regular or registered mail, it's deemed received five days later. An email service, once again, it's received when you get a response or if it, you don't get a response, but you can prove that it is an email address at which you have communicated with the opposing party before, probably more than once, um, then an arbitrator will deem it received three days later. Um, deemed receipt, though, is rebuttable. So if an, the other party can convince an arbitrator that they didn't receive it, then an arbitrator may find that it wasn't served, in which case um, it would be on you probably to ask for an adjournment so it could be served again, which would probably actually be the right remedy in that circumstance. Okay, so this is a evidence submission example, just so that you can sort of visualize deadlines a little bit. So in this example, there's a residential tenancy branch hearing on Thursday, November 26th, um, which means that the applicant has to have their evidence submitted and served by Wednesday, November 11th, and the respondent has to have their evidence served and submitted by Wednesday, November 18th. Uh, we talked a little bit about what what types of evidence people might generally use. Um, uh, rules of evidence, which is a sort of area of the common law, don't generally apply in residential tenancy branch proceedings. So you can't really object to things like hearsay in residential tenancy branch proceedings. I mean, you can, but an arbitrator probably won't care. So 
so you're allowed to essentially put in any kind of evidence and it's up to the arbitrator to decide sort of how much weight to put on any particular evidence. So while you can't object to something like hearsay, you can certainly argue in your closing argument that the other side's evidence was mostly comprised of hearsay and therefore shouldn't carry very much weight. Uh, for those who don't know what hearsay is, it just means um, if I was a witness who was testifying and I was trying to testify about what somebody else told me, that's hearsay. Um, and the reason why that's generally frowned upon in, in law is that if you're going to talk about what somebody else told you, then it's more appropriate to have that person there to testify themselves um, rather than you talking about what somebody else told you. Anyway, those rules generally don't apply. Uh, good evidence is relevant, reliable, authentic, complete, and legible. And that last one is very important. I've seen many landlord evidence package where you can't tell what's written or you can't see what the pictures show because the quality is so poor. Um, I mean, if an arbitrator can't tell what's, what a document says or what a picture shows, they're not going to put any weight on it. They're not going to give you the opportunity to sort of resubmit it in a better format. So you have to make sure it's good enough the first time around. Uh, it's pretty important to try to not overwhelm the arbitrator or the opposing party with a plethora of evidence. Arbitrators tend to not have a lot of time. Um, they are quite busy. They hear, I think, three hearings a day often. Uh, I don't think every day, but nonetheless, it's a lot of hearings, uh, which means they don't want to have to read thousands of pages uh, if it's at all avoidable. So consider what the simplest and most convincing way to prove your case is and sort of organize your evidence accordingly. Uh, I say that it can be helpful to create a table that lines up what facts you actually need to prove in one column and the evidence that you have to prove those facts in another column, and this is called an evidence matrix. And we'll have an example on the next slide. So this is an evidence matrix, a uh, very simple evidence ma matrix. So this one is about the return of a security deposit. And for the return of a security deposit, there's only really three facts that need to be proven. You have to prove that the tenant paid a security deposit. You have to prove that the tenant gave the landlord a forwarding address in writing. And you have to prove, question mark, whether you have to prove the landlord did not return the security deposit. The reason there's a question mark there is because arguably you can say it's hard to prove a negative. If, and if the landlord wants to allege that they did pay it back, then they should have to prove that they paid it back. Um, so first, uh, the fact that the tenant paid a security deposit there on the second column, there's the types of evidence that you might submit to prove that fact. Uh, first, a tenancy agreement that has a provision for the payment of the security deposit. So that's good evidence. If your tenancy agreement specifies that you must pay a security deposit, then that's evidence. If you got a receipt for the security deposit, that's good. Any bank records or copies of the check that you gave the landlord for the security deposit, that's also good. And or if you don't have any of those things, then testimony, your own testimony and of any other witnesses that saw you pay the security deposit. Um, then the second fact the that the tenant gave the landlord a forwarding oops, address in writing. How do I go back? Uh, I'll go back for you. There you go. Okay. <laughs> Uh, so here you may include a copy of the letter that you gave the landlord with the forwarding address, uh, and you you might have witnesses that saw you give the letter to the landlord or a registered mail receipt if you have if you sent it registered mail, 
given that sort of email service is acceptable now, um, copies of emails and, and relevant responses uh, would be good for now. Uh, and then thirdly, evidence that the landlord didn't pay the security deposit back. If you have, I mean, obviously you would want to testify uh, that the landlord didn't pay it back. If you have any other witnesses that can corroborate that or any communication from the landlord indicating that they don't intend to return it is also quite good. Uh, that said, if you don't have evidence of the last point, it's probably still worth going just on your own testimony, because like I said, there's a reasonable argument that if the landlord is going to allege that they repaid it, then they should be the ones who have to prove that. And this is sort of a, the simplest possible evidence matrix. With most cases, there's going to be a lot more facts that you need to prove, uh, so there'll be a lot more rows. And it's important to note that you need to have at least one thing in the right-hand com column for each fact that you need to prove. There's got to be at least one piece of evidence that you can put in there that you think that you have, because if you do not have the evidence to prove even a single fact that's necessary to your case, then your whole claim could fail. So it's very important. Okay, types of evidence continued. Uh, different types of Documents can be submitted as evidence depending on what's relevant. So tenancy agreements, condition inspection reports, pictures, copies of emails and texts, letters, receipts, etc. cetera. Uh, it's always important to remember that evidence can be in the form of testimony. So just because you don't have documents to back something up doesn't mean that you don't have evidence. So it could be the party's own testimony as well as any witnesses that they have that witness sort of relevant events and can testify to the facts. Generally speaking, if there's a witness that you have that you want to provide evidence of a certain fact, it's better to have them show up at the hearing in person, by which I mean phone into the hearing, um, rather than writing a letter, because it's generally seen as better evidence if a person is present at a hearing to be cross-examined than if they just write a letter, because then they can't be cross-examined, so their evidence can't really be tested by the other side. Um, but if a client or a witness cannot attend a hearing, they can write a signed and dated statement or swear an affidavit that the facts they're alleging are true. Uh, if you are an advocate, uh, whether it's a professional advocate or you just want to help others with dispute resolutions, you can become a con commissioner for taking affidavits. There, there's a test that you have to write, but it's relatively easy, and I think the commission, it, there's a cost involved too that I haven't looked in a long time at what it is, but you can sort of Google how, how that's done if you're interested. Okay, digital evidence. So nowadays, most evidence is digital. And I say that because um, the residential tenancy branch has moved everything to online service, essentially. So um, they expect everybody will be uploading documents rather than dropping off physical copies. That said, you can still drop off physical copies uh, at the residential tenancy branch or service BC office. However, what will happen with those is usually somebody at the branch will just scan them and the arbitrator will get them in a digital format anyway. So you may you might consider doing it yourself if you have the capability because then at least you have control over the quality of the scan and um, things like file naming, things like that, that might be important. Um, 
So you have to be mindful that your evidence quality is good, like I said. Um, if you are submitting videos or audio files, you have to it has to be good enough quality that an arbitrator can tell what's happening in the video or in the audio file. Um, oftentimes we have tenants with audio and video files that that's not the case. And we have to sort of tell them that we can't submit these because they're essentially worthless. Um, so the source has to be credible. Um, with audio and video, I think that's sort of less, less important, but, um, yeah. Can you just describe what you mean by credible, like in terms of a source? Well, yeah. I know uh, it's sure. tricky. <laughs> it, it is a little bit tricky. I mean, in terms of audio and video, I, I don't know how, why it would be not credible. Um, but if you have, for example, a letter from a witness, it's considered to be less credible if the witness is a family member or a spouse, um, just because they're much more likely to lie for you than somebody who isn't, doesn't have that kind of relationship to you. So that kind of thing. Right. So it's where the, the recording is coming from, not necessarily the recording itself. Yeah. yeah. So in the case of recording, again, like unless the other side raises something to to at least cast doubt on the credibility. Um, I don't think it matters what the source is, but in terms of things like uh, witness statements, then it matters who the who the source is. Mm -hmm. Oh, thanks for clarifying that. Yeah, no problem. Okay, so once you have you've lined up your evidence matrix, you have all the evidence to prove each factual point. You have to decide how you're going to organize it. Um, so usually what we do with documents and photos anyway is that we put them all into one PDF document. And there's sort of a, a really, there are very good reasons for this. Um, firstly, and the most important reason is whatever it is that you upload, whether it be one PDF document or a hundred different documents, you, you have to be able to refer to those in the hearing. So if you're submitting 100 small documents, um, then you better have named them in a way that it's easy to refer to. Um, in our view, it's always easier to put everything in one PDF document that's page numbered and then just take people to different pages during the hearing when you want them to look at different documents. Um, not everybody, of course, has the capability to or at least not to do that easily. Um, there are, I think, some free programs online where you can stitch together PDF documents, but there's some doubts about, I think, the security and privacy with those. So uh, here we have our own PDF editing software that we use to do it. Um, so we put everything in one PDF. We definitely always do a table of contents um, and number the pages. And we often will do a written submission that goes sort of at the front of that evidence, which um, essentially sets out the facts that we expect to come out in testimony in the hearing and what the relevant law is, what our legal argument is, and what remedy it is that we are seeking. Uh, so that's sort of the written submission. When it comes to serving the other side, and here's another point for trying to do it all in one document. Um, we like to serve landlords in hard copy because there, then there's no doubt about whether or not they can open the file because it's a hard copy. So if we have some 
if we, for example, submitted 100 different documents to the residential tenancy branch, which we have to refer to by file name when we're talking to the arbitrator, it's going to be very difficult to get the landlord to know which document we're talking about if we've given it to them in a hard copy. So that's another reason for why we we do it all in one one package. And the the reason this is a problem, uh, I should mention, is that any digital evidence that you serve on the landlord, um, whether you serve it on a USB stick or a CD or by email, now that email <clears throat> service is acceptable, you have to contact the landlord to ensure that they're able to open those files and view them. And if they say they can't, then you probably have an obligation to serve it again, um, maybe in a different format. And it can be a pain. So in our view, it's generally better serve anything that can be served in hard copy and hard copy. Um, that means that if you have photos that are color, when you've submitted to them to the RTB, you also have to print them in a color. So the landlord essentially has the same evidence that the RTB does. Okay. Um, so this is more if you're helping somebody else. So this is sort of the steps that we take when we try to prepare our clients for a hearing. First of all, you have, we have to make sure that they know when the hearing starts and how to call into the hearing. Generally, in sort of normal non-COVID times, we like to have our clients in the office with us um, so that we're all in the same room on speakerphone when we're going to a hearing. But if that's not possible, it's important that the client knows how to access the hearing. And we sort of run through the general dispute resolution process with them. And then we run through all of the testimony that we want them to give on their own behalf. It's called testimony in chief. So our preference for running a hearing is generally that we ask the client questions that the client answers and that's how their testimony comes out. Then they, the other side obviously then has a opportunity to cross-examine them. And then after that, sort of we give our closing arguments after both parties have given their evidence. Um, but not all arbitrators sort of let us do it that way. Some arbitrators prefer to ask questions themselves, so we have to be sort of prepared to deal with that a little bit flexibly. Um, we it's important that your client knows how to address the arbitrator. Um, generally, the arbitrators will tell you at the outset of the hearing what you can call them. Um, usually, they'll it'll just be arbitrator and last name. Some arbitrators, though, there's one in particular that refuses to give his name, even though his name is on the decision that you get afterwards, so you'll find out eventually. Uh, and he just wants to be called Mr. Arbitrator, which is amusing. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, and it's important to stress to your client or to yourself, if you're going to be representing yourself, that you have to act professional and respectful, no matter what the other side is doing in the hearing. Um, and no matter what the issues are. It's very, very important not to interrupt anybody who's talking at the hearing because it's done over conference call and anybody who's done a lot of conference calls knows that if multiple people start talking at once, nobody can hear anybody else. And arbitrators tend to get very annoyed if that happens more than once. And arbitrators have full controls over the proceedings. So you, even if you think that that you have a case that's a slam dunk or a person that you're helping has a case that's a slam dunk. It's never a slam dunk. It, the process can be quite unpredictable. Arbitrators are not bound by previous decisions. So even if every other decision on similar facts has gone your way before, it, this one may not. So you can't ever make a promise that uh, a person is going to win a hearing. 
So a person has to understand that. They have to understand the unpredictability of the process and the chance that they may not be successful. All right, uh, preparing witnesses. So often you'll ha you'll want to have other witnesses other than just yourself or other than just your clients. And the preparation will probably look similar to client preparation in that you want to go through all of the questions that you plan to ask them. So all the testimony that you want them, that you want to get out from them and then prepare them for a cross-examination. And that goes for your client as well. Um, prepare them for questions that you expect the other side to, to ask. It's, it's very important that they're not sort of caught out by, by questions that you could have prepared. And this goes for yourself too. Think about if you're going to represent yourself at a hearing, think about the questions that the other side might ask you on cross-examination in response to your own testimony. Uh, it's always important to tell the truth and don't exaggerate. Try to sort of stick to facts rather than opinions about the facts as much as you can during testimony. Um, and when you're being cross-examined or when your client is being cross-examined, it's important that you or the client listens carefully to each question Make sure that you understand the question before you answer it. So if you don't understand the question, you have to say that. You have to say you don't understand and see if they'll rephrase it. Uh, if you don't know the answer to a question, it's important that you say you don't know. Don't just guess. Um, because it, it's testimony. You've sworn to tell the truth. And it will whatever you say will go into evidence as the truth. Um, answer questions directly. And briefly, uh, unless you need to expand, if you need to expand on an answer, certainly do it. Uh, stay on topic and obviously don't engage in personal attacks. Uh, one thing to keep in mind for witnesses is that witnesses who aren't parties are most often excluded from most of the hearings. So the process we generally use is we have everybody come into our office or phone in right at the beginning of the hearing. So that includes the party that we're representing and any of their witnesses. Then we introduce everybody to the arbitrator or they introduce themselves. And then we tell the arbitrator who the witnesses are who are not parties. And the arbitrator most of the time will then exclude those witnesses. So they will say, tell them to either leave the room if they're in the same room as us or to hang up and they will be reconnected to the call later when it's their turn to give testimony. So witnesses are generally not allowed to hear the testimony of the parties before they themselves give their evidence. And that's obviously so that their, uh, their testimony isn't tainted by what they hear. Uh, so this is self-preparation as an advocate um, also works, I guess, if you're representing yourself, although you probably aren't going to be asking yourself direct examination questions and answering them, but you may want to write sort of point form notes about outlining the testimony that you want to give. Um, also, it's important to keep in mind, like I said before, that you need to be flexible about the way that that testimony will come out. So if you're sort of if you're an applicant and you're representing yourself, you may want to be able to just tell your story. Um, and many arbitrators will let you just tell your story, sort of, um, as long as you don't start to go too far off what they think the topic is. 
However, there are some arbitrators who will absolutely not let you do that and who will only want you to answer their direct questions. And that's a little bit trickier, especially if you know they've asked their questions and you still think that there's evidence that needs to come out that they haven't got at through your questions. Um, in those circumstances, we we suggest that you know you speak up and you tell the arbitrator that there is still evidence that that you, that you haven't been able to testify to, and that they have to let you testify to it. Now, if they if you get into it and they say that they don't think it's relevant. Um, it's up to you to decide how far you want to push it. If you do think it's relevant and they just don't understand why yet, then you can try to explain that. Um, but think think really hard about whether they're they're correct in their assessment that the evidence isn't relevant. Because if it isn't, then you probably don't want to give it. Um, write down any cross-examination questions that you think you'll ask the landlord and any of their witnesses. So it's it's useful to sort of have an idea of this ahead of time. Generally, though, um, you won't know what cross-examination questions you want to ask them until you hear their testimony. So you want to keep a sort of piece of paper, a blank piece of paper next to you when the landlord is testifying, where you can quickly jot down cross-examination questions as they come up uh, in their testimony. So you'll often hear things in testimony that make you think of questions that you want to ask them because it sounds like maybe they've contradicted themselves or something like that. Um, and you want to just write those down quickly as you hear them testify so that you can ask them once their testimony is finished. And then write out any closing arguments that you want to make loosely. Um, because the reason we say loosely is that the contents of your closing arguments will almost certainly change because testimony that comes out at the hearing often isn't testimony that you expect, especially from the other side. So be prepared to alter your closing arguments to reflect the evidence that actually came out in the hearing rather than the evidence that you expected to come out at the hearing before the hearing happened. Think about procedural requests. Um, generally, it's helpful to do this before the hearing if you can. So do you think you're going to need uh, an adjournment? Do you need to ask the arbitrator to accept late evidence? Or do you want to object to the opposing party's late evidence? Is your client or do you need a translator and, or special accommodation due to disability? So these, especially that last one, should generally be done well in advance of the hearing. Uh, and it's possible if you need accommodation, it's extremely rare, but possible that you might get an in-person hearing, but you have to do it well in advance. In terms of translators, um, RTB generally doesn't provide them. Uh, for I think, I think if you have an in-person hearing and you need an ASL interpreter, there's probably opportunity for them to provide that. But Generally, general interpretation, um, language interpretation, they don't provide. So parties are expected to sort of bring somebody to help translate. It can be a family member or a friend, which, of course, leads to its own problems. But that is how the process generally runs. Uh, if you do think of procedural requests that you want to make ahead of time, then try to figure out how to make them, because different procedural requests probably take uh, require a different process to make. So if you want like if you want to get an adjournment, uh, like I said before, the process is to get the other side's consent. 
and then send that request in at least three days before the hearing. When it comes to accepting late documents, though, um, the process is just to make that argument at the hearing. So you don't need to make that kind of request ahead of time. Um, if you're bringing your own translator, you don't have to do anything. You don't have to inform the arbitrator ahead of time that you're doing that. You just bring them. There are other kinds of procedural requests. For example, if you want to if you want to compel the other side to produce a document, then there is your the process is generally to write to the RTB and make that formal request, but there isn't a form for it. So you essentially just have to write a letter, uh, and that says that you you ex you want the other side to provide you with documents. You have to tell the RTB why you think that they have those documents and why those documents are relevant. And then an arbitrator can make an order ahead of time to for you to for the other party to disclose the documents to you, though more often than not, they will not actually make a ruling on that until the day of the hearing. So it's not clear how useful that is. Uh, it's possible that they could you can get to the day of the hearing and an arbitrator will then consider the procedural request. And if they decide that the other party has to disclose those documents to you, then they will adjourn the hearing at that point so that you have time to review the documents. All right, during the hearing. So you've prepared for your hearing. It is now the day of the hearing and you're going to call in. So it's, it's useful to know what the structure of a typical hearing is. Although it's hard to say what a typical hearing actually is, given that different arbitrators like to do things differently. But here's the typical hearing that we like to see and sometimes do actually see. Uh, first, what should happen is introductions. So everyone should get a chance to introduce themselves, what they're doing there, like who they are and what they're doing there. So the parties, that's usually obvious. The parties are there because they're the parties. But any witnesses or agents or advocates or translators all should introduce themselves and tell the arbitrator and everybody why they're there. Then after the introductions, um, usually you'll swear in at that point. So the parties are asked to swear to tell the truth, nothing but the truth. Um, although not all arbitrators do this and they're not required to swear you in. So you might not actually be sworn in. Regardless of whether or not you're sworn in, uh, you have an obligation to tell the truth. So, and then procedural issues should be dealt with right at that point. So that will involve things like requests for adjournments, requests to disclose documents, uh, requests to accept late evidence or objections to late evidence, um, any issues with service of evidence, those are all procedural issues. Once all of those are dealt with, then usually the applicant presents their evidence first. Uh, so that means that if you're the applicant, you give your testimony first. Once you finish giving your testimony, whether you just tell your story or whether the arbitrator asks you questions and you answer them, once that's done, the respondent should have an uh, opportunity to challenge that evidence uh, through cross-examination. Once the respondent is finished challenging your evidence and, and any evidence of your witnesses, then they present their evidence in the in the form of direct testimony and testimony of any of their witnesses. And then you should have a chance to cross-examine them and their witnesses on their evidence. And once all of that is done, then the applicant should get to make their final argument. So this is essentially a closing statement in which you want to summarize 
but not sort of rehash at length. Summarize the evidence that came out and make your sort of legal arguments. So explain to the arbitrator how you think the law should apply to the facts that came out in evidence. Then the respondent should get a chance to make a final argument. And once that's done, the arbitrator should close out the hearing. That said, that is the typical structure of the hearing. Like I said, the, the different arbitrators want to do things differently, and some people have experiences that differ wildly from that structure. So you have to be flexible and be prepared that things may not go the way you expect. Uh, so just some tips. Uh, right at the outset of the hearing, you want to have a pen and paper or a computer so that you can take notes. Have all of your evidence that you submitted in front of you. It's really important because you're going to want to refer to evidence throughout the hearing. Uh, it's important to note that the rules of procedure require parties to be present to present their evidence. Any documents that they submitted have to be presented. So if you want an arbitrator to consider any single document that you've put into evidence, you have to tell them why why that evidence is there, what it's supposed to represent, and how you want them to consider it. It's another reason why you may not want to put in thousands of pages, because you have to go through all of them. Uh, anything that you don't explain to the arbitrator, the arbitrator does not have to consider. Uh, if you are acting as an agent, oh, geez, sorry, that was my bad. Can you go back a couple? Yeah, for sure. Is that where you want to be? Uh, right there, yeah. If you're acting as an agent or assistant to a party, then you need to explain to an arbitrator that that's what you are, that you're not a party yourself. And if they need guidance in what the role of an agent or an assistant or an advocate is, there's a policy guideline on the Residential Tenancy Branch website that you can point them to. Um, the reason this is here in the slide is because years ago when I was doing this work, some arbitrators would not, they didn't know what advocates were or what agents were and didn't want us in the hearings. So we would always have this sort of this policy guideline on hand that we could point them to so that they would understand that actually tenants have a right to have people with them and act in these roles. So there is a policy guideline that sets out what the roles are. Again, be prepared to ask for any procedural requests that you haven't already asked for at the beginning of the hearing, uh, evidence issues, adjournments, that kind of thing. Write down everybody's names. Um, and if the arbitrator doesn't deal with service at the start of the hearing, then it's probably prudent for you to bring it up as one of the parties. Um, Arbitrators should do this. Arbitrators should definitely check with parties that they received the evidence, all of the documents, but some of them don't. Um, if you have any doubt that you've received all of the landlord's documents, bring that up to the arbitrator. Uh, it's, it's important because you don't want to end up in a situation where halfway through the hearing or at the end of the hearing, the landlord starts referring to documents in their evidence that you don't have. Uh, it's much better if you can deal with that, that outset of the hearing, and if it turns out that there's documents that you don't have that you ask for an adjournment or something so that the landlord can serve those documents on you. You can also ask for them to be excluded from the hearing outright um, at that point. But if you didn't do that start, it's a lot harder to sort of ask for an adjournment once you've already gotten most of the way through the hearing. 
when you're listening to the landlord's testimony, again, cannot stress enough, please don't ever interrupt. Uh, you will do nothing except alienate the decision maker, which is one thing you don't want to do. Um, take notes. And if you hear anything you don't agree with, then bring it up when the landlord is finished talking. So generally, if you don't agree with something, um, you can get at it a couple different ways. You can get at it through cross-examination. If you think you can get the landlord to sort of contradict themselves by asking them certain questions, then by all means, do it that way. Uh, if you don't think you can do that, then you can choose to save it for your closing arguments, for example. So if you think your landlord's lied about something and that something is actually material to the case, but you don't think you can get anything helpful on cross-examination, you can still, in your closing argument, say that you know you don't think the landlord's testimony regarding that fact was accurate. Um, I would caution to shy away from using words like lying um, or untruthful or dishonest. Um, you might, there's no reason to not be generous in your interpretation. So if you think the landlord has said something that's untrue, um, you could decide to ascribe that uh, to mistake or uh, misremembering. If an arbitrator, if you start talking about the landlord being dishonest, an arbitrator might see that as more combative and not as useful. So it's it's important to stick to the facts. Say this fact that the landlord testified about was actually incorrect or inaccurate, and here's what actually happened, rather than using language that indicates that you think your landlord is a liar, essentially. Um, when you are cross-examining, there's two main goals. So the first goal is to ident identify problems with the landlord's evidence. So if you've listened to the landlord give their testimony and you think that there are gaps or inconsistencies, things that the landlord is exaggerated or that aren't supported by the documents that they've submitted, you can ask cross-examination questions that try to illuminate those gaps or inconsistencies. And the second goal is attacking their credibility. Um, again, this is not to say that you want to ask a question of the landlord like, you're lying, aren't you? Because the answer isn't going to be yes. Um, but you want to ask questions that show that the landlord isn't credible in, in the sense that they are their their facts are inconsistent and it looks like their memory just isn't good enough. And if it looks like they can't remember what happened, then that makes their testimony less credible. Or if they just don't know about something. Um, another example is if a landlord is giving testimony that looks like they're purporting to have expertise in something, uh, for example, plumbing. Suppose that the landlord is giving testimony that you think sort of requires the expertise of a plumber and you know that the landlord doesn't have that expertise, then you can ask cross-examination questions that essentially elicit answers like, no, I don't have any experience as a plumber, et cetera, uh, just to highlight the fact that the landlord actually doesn't have the knowledge to give the testimony that they've given. Uh, okay. 
your client or witness testimony. Uh, okay. So this is, again, mostly if you're helping somebody else, but it also works if you're sort of organizing your own testimony. So again, think about what is the simplest way for me to prove the thing that I need to prove uh, in the sort of fewest amount of words possible. Um, as you're doing this, think about how you're going to point to the documents as you go. So in when we do this with clients, we generally ask them to turn to a certain page in our in our documentary evidence and identify the document that's there. Sometimes we ask them to read sections of it out loud just to sort of highlight the important parts of documents. And these are all things that uh, you can consider doing when you're representing yourself as well. Um, if you have if you've put in sort of longer documents, so if you have a opinion letter from a contractor or something like that, and it's four pages long, but what you really want to the arbitrator to get out of that is all in one paragraph, then it's perfectly fine to to read that paragraph out loud during your testimony. Uh, testimony, sh like the rules of evidence don't apply, but that doesn't mean that an arbitrator won't consider things like hearsay when they're deciding how much weight to put on evidence. So testimony should be firsthand. You should testify only about things that you have firsthand knowledge of. And your witnesses should only testify about things that you have first, they have firsthand knowledge of. That said, if there's no other way to get a certain piece of evidence in other than hearsay, you can do it. But the arbitrator may not put a lot of weight on that piece of evidence. And again, both the landlord and arbitrator have have the opportunity to ask you or your clients questions after you're finished giving your testimony. Closing statements. Um, so this is where you take the opportunity to summarize the evidence that came out. And so that includes your own testimony. You can pull out highlights of the landlord's testimony that works for you. Uh, be as concise as possible. but you know, don't skip over important parts. This is the, the part of the hearing where you get to tell the arbitrator how they should view the evidence. So it's an important part. And if you if an arbitrator tries to close out a hearing without letting you do this, you should ask for your right to give a closing argument. Because this is the one opportunity where you tell get to tell the arbitrator how the, you think the law applies to the facts. Uh, up until now, when you're giving your evidence, you shouldn't be making any legal arguments. All of that should be left until the closing statement. Our general approach is to try to start off by telling the arbitrator what we will be doing in our closing arguments. So things like I will be making the following three points, um, list the points, and then begin to make them. So the arbitrator knows where you're going before you go there. It's very useful. Reference the law, policy guidelines, case law that you think is relevant. Don't necessarily read them, especially if they're longer, um, because arbitrators won't appreciate that. They'll tell you that they know the law or they can look it up themselves. If you have an inclination that you think you need to read something out loud from a policy guideline or the law, it's fine. Do it. But be prepared for an arbitrator to object if you sort of do that for too long. Refer back to the testimony that came out, um, like I said, from any party uh, and refer to the documentary evidence. Again, any documents that you have not sort of explained already through testimony refer to during the closing statements. If you have not referred to one of your documents in either testimony or the closing statement, uh, 
An arbitrator may not consider it. Um, so as you're doing that, tell the arbitrator what page the document is on, pause and let them find it, and then explain to them what that document demonstrates, why it's relevant. Never assume that an arbitrator is just going to know why a document is relevant, even if it seems clear to you. At the end of the hearing, um, yeah, thank the arbitrator for conducting the hearing. Generally speaking, you should get your decision within 30 days of the hearing date. Often it's much faster than that, but I have seen ones that have taken longer as well. Arbitrator's decisions are legally binding and enforceable. Um, so, for example, if you, if you were the respondent in a hearing and you have a monetary order against you. As soon as that monetary order is issued, it becomes enforceable and the landlord can start taking enforcement steps. All right, after the hearing. So let's say you've gone through the hearing, you did the best you could, but you still got a decision that you don't think is right. And you want to know whether there is something you can do to overturn it. So there's a couple different things. The, there's the RTB review consideration option which is very limited in terms of when you can do it. So there's only three grounds on which you can have something reviewed at the RTB. Um, the first is if you weren't able to attend the hearing due to circumstances beyond your control. Uh, the second is if you have new and relevant evidence that was not available at the time of the original hearing. So it's important to, to note that the evidence has to be evidence that wasn't available at the time of the original hearing, not just evidence that you didn't have, but evidence that you essentially could not have had at the time of the original hearing. And third, uh, you can apply for a review if you have evidence that the decision was obtained by fraud. So if your landlord lied through their teeth and you can prove it, then that would be a ground for review, but you must have evidence. And there's some timelines for review. Again, these are now subject to uh, the emergency rules. So it's you only have two days to apply for review consideration if the subject of the original hearing was a notice to end tenancy for non-payment, uh, early end to tenancy, an order of possession, or the landlord withholding consent to sublet or assign a unit five days for notice to end tenancy for any other reason other than non-payment, uh, repairs or maintenance or terminating or restricting services or facilities, and 15 days for any other matter. Again, during the emergency period, arbitrators have to consider COVID-19 as an exceptional circumstance when they're, when they're deciding whether or not to extend a time limit. And then next, the only other way to overturn a residential tenancy branch hearing is judicial review. So if you think that you or your client was denied natural justice, so one of those procedural fairness, natural justice rights that we talked about at the beginning, like uh, the right to be notified of a proceeding or the right to respond to the case against you, that kind of thing. If you think that one of those rights was denied, or if the decision was patently unreasonable for another reason, then you can seek judicial review through Supreme Court. Now, the residential tenancy branch is considered to be an expert tribunal, so the test for actually having one of their decisions overturned is very, very high. That's why we say patently unreasonable. The decision needs to be more unreasonable than just regular unreasonable in order for a Supreme Court judge to overturn it. 
if you do this, and if the judge agrees with you that the decision was patently unreasonable, generally all that happens is that the decision gets sent back to the residential tenancy branch for a rehearing. So the judge won't sort of substitute their own decision for the branch's decision. They will just tell the branch to decide it again. So it could be, it's possible that even after all of this, you go back to the RTB and they will decide the exact same way, but with better reasons the second time around. Okay, and that's it for the presentation portion of this. So there's different places that you can go to find out more information. So uh, rules of procedure are on the Residential Tenancy Branch website, and then there's our website at tenants.bc.ca and at the Dispute Resolution tab. And those questions, if there are any. Thank you, Susanna. That was very thorough. And um, I can tell in your presentation that a lot of times you might be talking about a policy, but you're thinking about a situation that you've been in, especially during a dispute resolution process. Because mm -hmm. uh, you've done a lot of these, haven't you? Oh, yes. I've done a fair number of these over the years. Yeah. And would you say, I'm just going to pick your brain a bit while we're waiting for questions to come in here. Um What's a couple of key factors in terms of a success rate? I mean, obviously, you've kind of gone into that in detail, but um, is it usually better to have somebody there as an advocate when you're doing dispute resolution? Uh, yeah, I would say so. I'd say generally it's better, um, but that depends. Like if you are comfortable with it and you're comfortable explaining the law and the facts and how the law applies to the facts, then you should be able to do pretty much as good of a job as an advocate. But generally speaking, yeah, advocates have experience with it. They already have the law in their back pocket, so to speak. So if, if nothing else, it's at least faster for them to be able to sort of put things together. Mm -hmm. And then the other question that often comes up is, um, especially in the, in the line of work that we're doing, people, uh, because of trauma or other barriers, find it difficult uh, to engage in dispute resolution, um, or uh, they might be relying on you to be their voice because they might have some barriers. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Um, how important is it for your client to actually be there during the process? It's important. Um, it's very important. I, we rarely provide testimony for our clients. It's actually considered inappropriate for the most part. Uh, you can't give sworn testimony about facts that you were not present for. Uh, it's not something you can do. So you can, it's, it's pretty vital for uh, the parties to be present, especially if the, if your client is the applicant. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, it's their burden of proof in general. So they, they really should be there to provide their testimony. And is there, uh, do arbitrators, I mean, obviously they're, it sounds like they're all very specific in their approach, but um, say somebody needed another support person there as well as you or a case manager or advocate, um, how open to that are arbitrators? Generally pretty open. Uh, they may not like it if there's too many people, but if you have an advocate and one support person, that's not, it's not too many. Yeah. They, they are open. Oh, that's good. And are you seeing anything specifically right now um, that's uh, unique to this t time period? Like, have you seen a lot of arbitrators um, set aside deadlines based on COVID-19? What's, what's, what's track been hearing on this? Yeah. 
Uh, we are hearing that they're they're definitely more inclined to do that, uh, especially, of course, the tenants or landlords who are looking for a deadline to be extended or an adjournment due to COVID-19 have to explain how COVID-19 made it impossible for them to meet the deadline or too difficult to meet the deadline. They can't just say, I didn't meet the deadline because of COVID-19. They have to actually explain it. Right. Uh, but they are they are doing it. Yeah. And do you want to talk a little bit? We've got some questions here around the compliance and enforcement unit. Um, is that generally, are they looking at landlords actions or are they also looking for compliance in tenants as well? Both. They, they investigate both. Uh, I don't remember the exact numbers, but I know the majority of complaints and investigations they have are against landlords, but they have gone the other way as well. And is this something that's available across the province or is it mostly in the lower mainland? It's across the province. Um, anyone from anywhere in the province can uh, make a complaint to the compliance and enforcement unit and they should investigate. Uh, imagine most of their investigation does not involve actually going to places physically. So uh, I think most of it's done over the phone or mm -hmm. Internet. Yeah. And so it's a... Um, a flexible unit at the moment. Are they? Are you seeing them do a lot of work right now? Uh, the thing about the compliance and enforcement unit is that, that they're normally only four people, and right now they're actually down to three. Uh, so they do what they can. Uh, I have definitely used them before, and they've. My understanding is they launch an investigation uh, in the, the complaint that I filed with them, but uh, they're limited to what three people can do. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. So is there any, just as we wrap up here, obviously, if there are more questions that come in, um, you can ask them now or we can uh, talk to Susanna and track at a later date. You can contact them. But is there any sort of final words of encouragement that you would give to somebody who maybe is just starting out as an advocate in, in terms of dispute resolution, given that you've had a lot of experience? Like one, one thing that they could take away with them today uh, to encourage yeah. them in this process. I, one thing, uh, I think the most important thing is that to be prepared for just about anything in a dispute resolution, uh, things go unexpectedly more often than they go expectedly. So it's really important to be flexible in your approach to how you want to conduct a hearing. Uh, if you, for example, if an arbitrator does not want to give you the right to cross-examine somebody, uh, you can insist on that right. Now, you do have the right to do that. You have the right to test the other side's evidence. Um, but in general, if an arbitrator wants to conduct a hearing more sort of inquisitorially rather than allowing you to ask questions, in my experience, it's better to let them. Just make sure that all of the evidence that you need to get out gets out somehow. Mm -hmm. Well, that makes sense. And I also liked the point that you brought up at the beginning is really something that we often don't think about, or I don't often think about in my frontline work, because I just want to help people, is to really think about whether you're the right person to be yeah. engaged in the process. Yeah, certainly. Um, one, We had one case recently where we had to uh, essentially make a very lengthy, complicated argument about insurance subrogation, which we are not at all experts in. So that was stretching the limits of what we probably should have taken on. But we didn't actually know that was going to be an issue until we had already gone, you know, a couple months into preparing for that case. So sometimes that can happen. But certainly if we had noticed that issue at first, we may have thought twice about opening that file. So that kind of thing is important. 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, Susanna, I just want to say thank you for your time today. Um, and again, I apologize for that handout of the PowerPoint not being available right now, but we will email it to you if you need it. Um, and thanks for joining us and thanks for doing the work that you do, um, especially in this time period when things are changing and are different. We appreciate it. Thanks. Um, so you can get in touch with Track. Um, in lots of different ways. Uh, Facebook, uh, they're really good at answering questions on Facebook as well as through Twitter. And you can go to their website at tenants.bc.ca. Um, and they've got a lot of great resources for you there. And all of our resources, um, handouts, webinar recordings, podcast versions, we, we're, we're starting to do audio recordings of all of our webinars. So you can listen to them in the car or when you're doing your dishes or whatever. Um, you can find those in the sector resources tab on our website. And you can always get in touch with us at any point. We really love hearing from you. And I just want to say thank you again to Zuzana and Track. We've been working together for quite a long time now, and I always appreciate the work and the advocacy that is going on over there, as well as the wealth of information that's available on their website. And um, thank you for everybody who's doing the work you're doing right now and have always been doing. Thank you for showing up. Stay safe, stay calm, and uh, we'll see you soon. Take care. HSABC is a provincial, member-driven organization, and our mandate is to strengthen and unify services across BC that are addressing the needs of those experiencing homelessness. Right now, so many of our members, as well as their friends, families, colleagues and clients, are facing unprecedented challenges, as well as a total change to our daily lives. And we're here to help support you on the front lines, however we can. You keep showing up, even in the most intense and difficult of circumstances, for the most vulnerable. Thank you for all the work you do, and for continuing to do it every day. Our website is hsa-bc.ca, and you can find COVID-19-specific resources for frontline and shelter workers, including handouts, posters, webinar video, news and health authority updates, and much more. You can also email us at info at hsa-bc.ca or find us on Twitter at underscore hsabc. Stay calm, stay safe, stay strong. <laughs>